You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 160, The Paoli Massacre and the Fall of Philadelphia. The last week we followed the Continental Army as it crossed the Schuylkill River and deployed along what was then the eastern border of Philadelphia, awaiting the British Army's final push to take the city. The British General Howe had defeated General Washington at Brandywine, and after the rained-out Battle of the Clouds, Howe faced virtually no military opposition as his army advanced on Philadelphia. General Howe, though, seemed in no particular hurry to enter the city. After the Battle of Brandywine, the bulk of his army remained in camp for five days. After learning that the Continentals were advancing toward him, Howe finally marched out his army to do battle, only to see the Continentals withdraw under a heavy thunderstorm. The British then advanced northward, but made no attempt to cross the Schuylkill River and enter the city. On September 18th, Colonel Hamilton warned Congress that the British could be in Philadelphia that very night. Hamilton's letter and the warnings of other officers set off a panic within the city. The president of the Continental Congress, John Hancock, reportedly passed along the alarm to the rest of Congress, then loaded everything he could into a collection of wagons and carriages, and left the city at 3 a.m. the next morning. Most other delegates did much the same. Two days later, the expected arrival of the British Army in Philadelphia was still, well, just an expectation. The British Army camped patiently along the west bank of the Schuylkill River. On September 21st, John Adams, who had fled to Trenton, New Jersey, wrote in his diary, It was a false alarm which occasioned our flight from Philadelphia. Not a soldier of Howe's has crossed the Schuylkill. Adams went on to speculate that General Howe would wait for his brother, Admiral Richard Howe, to sail the British Navy up the Delaware River before entering the city. Instead, the British were moving further upstream along the Schuylkill, in an apparent attempt to flank the Continentals, as they had done on the Brandywine. Washington also moved his army further upstream to contest any crossing and prevent just such a flanking maneuver. To further vex the British, Washington deployed divisions of soldiers on the west bank and behind enemy lines. One division was a force of about 1,500 soldiers under the command of General Anthony Wayne. General William Maxwell commanded a second force working in cooperation with Pennsylvania Militia General James Potts. The goal of these units was to keep a low profile in the enemy's rear, then harass and attack the enemy when the opportunity presented itself. 
General Washington also ordered General William Smallwood to bring his Maryland regiments and attack the enemy rear as well. Smallwood had been in Baltimore when the British landed in northern Maryland. In the following weeks, he had mustered more Maryland soldiers and marched them north toward the rear of Howe's army. Washington anticipated that these actions would be similar to the hit-and-run raids of the Forage War that they had conducted in New Jersey the previous winter and spring. Those actions had left the British frustrated and distracted. It also had kept the British Army pretty well isolated in New York City. Washington hoped these new groups of opportunistic hit-and-run raiders would similarly leave the British Army frustrated and distracted, and hopefully isolated, even if they took Philadelphia. Each of these divisions had a large contingent of 1,500 to 2,000 soldiers, as well as a few cannons. Smallwood's division had marched to Sadsbury Township, which was probably still about a day's march from the main British force. Generals Maxwell and Potts had deployed out near Valley Forge, north of the main British force, and ready to pounce on the British left flank if it tried to cross the Schuylkill. General Wayne deployed near Paoli Tavern, just a few miles south of the main British army, and was prepared to attack the British right flank. On September 19th, British outposts at Valley Forge came under attack from General Maxwell's soldiers. Howe sent General Cornwallis with two grenadier battalions and a light infantry battalion to engage the enemy and reinforce the outpost at Valley Forge. But by the time Cornwallis arrived, there were no enemy soldiers to engage. He did report that he could see elements of Washington's army across the Schuylkill River in the hills dotting the eastern bank of the river. Maxwell's and Potter's men had been tasked with harassing the enemy but avoiding a large direct engagement. As during the Forage War, they would attack outposts when they had the opportunity, but then fade away when the larger armies marched out to engage them. To the south, General Wayne saw Cornwallis's troops on the march toward Valley Forge and thought that the British might have been alerted to his presence. He moved his soldiers a few miles away into some hills that provided more protection. The British had detected the American movements and received intelligence from local Tories that these men were under the command of General Wayne. General Wayne, of course, was born and raised in Chester County and was well known to the locals. The British deployed a brigade of light infantry, along with Ferguson's riflemen, to launch a surprise raid. However, Wayne's pickets alerted the main force to the British approach. The Continentals retreated before the British could engage them, and the British did not want to pursue them into the hills. The following day, the British intercepted a letter from Washington to Wayne, confirming that Wayne was in command of a force in their rear. Wayne was staying a few miles from the British camp, close enough to keep tabs on them, but able to slip away again if the British attacked in force. Wayne's hope was that General Smallwood's Marylanders would link up with his force and that a combined force of about 3,500 could attack the British rear when they tried to cross the river and advance on Philadelphia. The British Army opted to dispatch Wayne's small and isolated force before it could become a bigger problem for them. Howe tasked Major General Charles Gray to lead the attack. 
Now, General Gray deserves a brief introduction here. He was born in 1729 to the first baronet of Harwick. Because Charles was the fourth son, he was not in line to inherit lands or title, so Dad thought he should have a career in the military. At age 14, his family purchased an ensign's commission for him in the regular army. Young Charles then traveled to Scotland in time to be part of the British Massacre of the Scots at Culloden as one of his earliest military experiences. During the Seven Years' War, Gray served as an aide to the Duke of Brunswick. He was wounded at the Battle of Minden and again in another battle a few months later. He continued in active service, though, participating in several more European battles as well as the invasion of Cuba. By the end of the war, he had risen to lieutenant colonel. The end of the Seven Years' War also saw the end of active service for Colonel Gray, who had to go on half pay. Fortunately, family money and connections kept him living the life of a proper English gentleman. A few years later, in 1772, he received a promotion to full colonel and served as aide-de-camp to King George III. When the king sent General Howe to capture New York in 1776, Gray went along and within a year had risen to the rank of Major General, most recently serving as Brigade Commander at the Battle of Brandywine. For the present mission, General Gray had to dispatch the American forces in the British rear. Otherwise, General Howe could not cross the Schuylkill without fear of an attack from both sides. In order to surprise the Americans, who seemed to run away whenever they saw the British advancing on their position, Gray ordered his forces that were camped at Tredifrin to march out for a nighttime raid. After dark on September 20th, 1,200 men from the 2nd Light Infantry Brigade, along with two regiments of regulars and Ferguson's rifles, marched out of camp in search of the enemy. General Gray, however, was not interested in rifle fire, or musket fire for that matter. He ordered all of his soldiers to keep their guns unloaded and actually ordered them to remove the flints to prevent any firing. He wanted a silent attack and the use of the bayonet against the enemy. Gray's brigade moved out into the night, knowing that Wayne's force was in the area, but not knowing their exact position. As they got closer, Gray's officers were able to compel a local to give up Wayne's location nearby. Sometime shortly after midnight, the British ran into Continental Camp pickets and dispatched them with their bayonets. The pickets, however, did have time to alert the camp, which began to form into lines. Before they could get organized, the British Light Infantry charged into the camps and bayoneted everyone they could find. Now, some Americans tried to mount a brief defense. Officers attempted to form their men into lines, but the British Light Infantry was on top of them before most could properly react. Without sufficient time to organize a defense, the surviving Americans fled into the woods. The British set the camp on fire, again bayoneting any soldier that tried to escape from a burning tent. Now, the same darkness that gave the British cover in their advance also gave the Americans cover in their retreat. General Wayne was able to escape and bring with him the artillery and some of his wagons. 
Several others, however, fell into enemy hands. American accounts of the attack said that British soldiers mercilessly bayoneted all of the wounded and those trying to surrender. In truth, though, the British did capture at least 70 or 80 prisoners, about half of whom were seriously wounded. Estimates of Americans killed range from about 53 to 120, although that higher estimate almost certainly includes some wounded who died after the fact. The British reported only five killed and seven wounded among the attackers. During the attack on Wayne's division, General Smallwood's 2,000 Marylanders were camped only about a mile away. They heard the battle as it erupted. Had they marched to the aid of Wayne's brigade, they would have outnumbered the British considerably. However, these were mostly inexperienced, newly recruited soldiers. Instead of organizing a counterattack, most of them fled into the woods themselves, never engaging with the enemy. Half of Smallwood's force deserted that night and returned home to Maryland. The British considered the raid a great victory. General Gray got the nickname Charles No Flints Gray for his command to remove the flints from their guns before the battle. He would continue on in the war with his reputation enhanced, and we'll hear more about his later exploits in future episodes. Most of the surviving Continentals were able to cross the river and join up with the rest of Washington's main force. General Wayne took much the blame for the loss. Several accusers, including some of Wayne's own officers, accused Wayne of failing to deploy sufficient camp guards to warn of the attack. There was no time to hear these accusations for the next few weeks, but in October, the army assembled a court-martial to question whether Wayne was guilty of neglect of duty. Wayne's defense laid out that he was well aware of the possibility of an attack based on a civilian tip. He had increased the pickets and taken other precautions. Wayne, in turn, then accused one of his subordinates and accusers, Colonel Richard Humpton, of failing to react quickly enough to the attack and mount a proper defense. In the end, the court-martial acquitted General Wayne and did not seek to pin blame for the success of the attack on anyone else. Having dispatched the enemy in their rear, the British prepared to advance once again. Howe moved various divisions further up the Schuylkill River toward Reading. From that movement, he could either attack the depot at Reading or cross the river further upstream and then descend on Washington's flank, just as he had done at Brandywine. Washington was determined not to let that happen. He kept his own army moving upstream to confront the British wherever they attempted to cross. As Washington moved upstream to block Howe's next movement, Howe simply turned his army around, slipped back downstream, and crossed the river at the fords that Washington had just abandoned. Only a few local militia attended the fords, and they turned and ran at the first sight of the British advance. With the Continentals out of position, there was nothing to prevent the British from entering Philadelphia. Howe crossed his army on the night of September 22nd and the morning of September 23rd. He marched his army to a camp in Norristown, which is a little less than 20 miles northwest of Philadelphia. He was now between the Continental Army and the city. Howe spent the next day in camp, 
neither attacking Washington's Continentals nor marching into the city. His army plundered and burned the homes of known rebels. Many locals fled with whatever they could carry, but other locals greeted the army as liberators. A great number of area loyalists had remained silent for years for fear of incurring the wrath of patriots. These families saw the British as saviors, returning law and order to the region. The next day, the British marched to Germantown, which is today part of the city of Philadelphia, but at the time was still a few miles outside the city limits. As you might guess from the name, most of the population of this area were German-speaking colonists. Even so, the German-speaking Hessian soldiers found the local population rather hostile to them. Most of the inhabitants were members of a pacifist religious sect that had immigrated from the Palatine region of what is today Germany. They had hoped to escape the continual warfare of many of their neighbors, including Hesse. Many of them saw this as a return of the military oppression that they had tried to leave behind in Europe. Because they were pacifists, most of them did not take up arms against the new occupiers, but they also did not see them as liberators and met them with a cold hostility. General Howe paused to see if the Continentals would attempt some sort of desperate counterattack to defend the city. When that did not happen, Howe left the bulk of his army in Germantown, about 10,000 soldiers, and deployed General Cornwallis to march into Philadelphia with about 3,500 men. On the morning of September 26th, Philadelphians saw the Redcoats march through their streets, taking control of the city. Cornwallis led a triumphal march down 2nd Street, turning west to march through town, past Independence Hall, where the rebels had declared independence just a year earlier. By his side was General Erskine, along with several leading loyalists from the city, Joseph Galloway and two of the Allen brothers, from the family for whom Allentown is named. Governor John Penn probably would have liked to have joined them, but he was being held prisoner by the Patriots in New Jersey. The conquering army received a rather muted response. The majority of Philadelphians had fled the city. A few weeks earlier, the town had a population of about 40,000. As Cornwallis entered the city, an estimated 10,000 remained. Congress had ended its session and moved to Lancaster eight days earlier. Patriots had taken the State House Bell, what we today call the Liberty Bell, out of the city to be hidden in Allentown. Thousands of Patriot refugees, many families of men who were fighting with the Continentals, had fled the city with only what they could carry. Those who remained did not know what to expect. Even Loyalists had their concerns. Those with finer homes might find them confiscated for use as officers' residences. Many remembered a year earlier when British occupied New York and half the city was burned in order to deny it to the enemy. Despite capturing Philadelphia, the British still had not opened up the Delaware River. The British were without access to food and supplies there was a possibility that the Patriots might besiege the city and attempt to starve out the occupants. 
so no one was quite sure what the next step was going to be. There were a few in the British leadership who believed that the capture of Philadelphia was the decisive victory that they had long sought. Traditionally, the capture of an enemy capital marked its surrender and ended the war. It had been just over a month since the British had landed at Head of Elk, Maryland. The British Army had overcome every obstacle in its path with relative ease. General Howe had taken his time, avoiding any sorts of ambushes or traps that could surprise his army. His faith in the professionalism of his officers and soldiers against an ill-trained rebel army seemed well-founded at the moment. For the Patriots, of course, the loss of Philadelphia was a setback, but not a fatal one. As Thomas Paine had written a couple of weeks earlier, they were fighting for a cause, not for a couple of acres of ground. Although Philadelphia had been the seat of Congress, it was not the home of some single leader who could offer surrender. Congress could simply move to another town and continue its business, as it had a year earlier when it moved to Baltimore. When Benjamin Franklin received the news in Paris a few weeks later that Philadelphia had fallen, he rhetorically asked, Has Howe captured Philadelphia, or has Philadelphia captured Howe? One could easily dismiss this as Franklin's attempt to spin some very bad news. But his point was that Howe's capture of the city had not ended anything. Howe was now stuck in this inland area and forced to defend it against attack and unable to move his armies elsewhere. Now, this had immediate consequences. Remember, London had hoped that Howe would capture Philadelphia early in the summer, recruit some local Tories to garrison the city, and then move the bulk of his army north to assist with General Burgoyne's march through the Hudson Valley. By the time Howe finally took Philadelphia, it was practically October. He still was not in any position to redeploy his soldiers northward to New York. Shortly after taking Philadelphia, he received word that General Burgoyne had suffered a setback and that his army could be in real trouble. Next week, we'll look at Burgoyne's trouble in New York as we cover the Battle of Freeman's Farm. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 
to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to Train Ants and George Davis for their support of the podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level. I really am grateful for supporters like this who have become major sponsors of this podcast. Their help to defray my expenses for a podcast that has grown far larger than I ever expected has been a great help. I appreciate everyone, of course, who has made an ongoing commitment to the show on Patreon for as little as $2 a month. Also, thanks to Brenda Richmond, who made a generous one-time contribution via PayPal. Anyone can support the show by making a one-time payment via PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, or Pop Money via the links that you can find on my website or blog. All of that helps me to keep the show available for free for those who cannot afford to support it financially. As I noted last week, I've been making the show for three years straight and have yet to miss a single weekly release of the show. Researching, writing, recording, and editing a show each and every week by myself without any help has been a real-time commitment. Part of what keeps me going is the support that I hear from you, the listeners, who have told me, either through direct communications, online reviews, or financial support, that you find this podcast worthwhile. This week I covered the Paoli Massacre. Even before release, I've heard complaints from some who say it should be called the Paoli Battle rather than the Paoli Massacre because those killed were soldiers and not unarmed civilians. They argue that the use of the word massacre implies some moral judgment against the British. My view on this is that a massacre is a one-sided event, where many are killed just on one side and none or very few on the other. When you charge into a camp at night and kill men just rolling out of bed, you are likely to get that sort of one-sided outcome. I really try to go out of my way to let the facts speak for themselves. I suppose I have some bias in that I grew up not too far from Paoli and have always heard the event called the Paoli Massacre. That is the way the locals remember it, and that is what I've always remembered calling it myself. I'm really not trying to ascribe any moral judgment by using that word. War is in fact about killing the enemy and not getting too many of your own men killed. That is what the British set out to do that night, and they succeeded. As an officer of a later war said, war is hell. I also wanted to say a few more words about General Charles No Flints Gray, the commander of the British forces at Paoli. Now, Gray would return to Britain in 1778, but continued his military career in the war with France. The king would grant him a knighthood in the exclusive Order of the Bath and promote him to lieutenant general. Shortly after the Battle of Yorktown, Gray would receive a commission to become commander-in-chief of North America. However, because major combat operations ceased after Yorktown, he never actually took that command. Gray would continue to serve the British Empire in the ongoing disputes with revolutionary France. Because he was not the firstborn, he did not inherit his father's title. However, the king did grant him his own title as Baron Gray of Harwick. This gave Gray a peerage and a seat in the House of Lords. 
A few years later, the king bestowed upon him another title as the first Earl Grey. His son was also named Charles Grey and inherited the first Earl's wealth and title to become the second Earl Grey after the general's death in 1807. The second Earl Grey would go on to become Prime Minister of Great Britain. And not just any Prime Minister. During his tenure, he passed the Reform Act of 1832, which reformed British electoral policies and greatly expanded the franchise within Britain. This act was largely credited with keeping Victorian England on a path of peace and prosperity during an era when democratic revolutions popped up all over the rest of Europe. Not content with that single act, Gray also saw passage of the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833, ending slavery within the British Empire. For these and other accomplishments, Earl Grey is considered one of Britain's greatest prime ministers. Many of you probably know him best because he had a form of tea that was named after him, Earl Grey. So whatever you think of General Grey's actions at the Paoli Massacre, his family did go on to do some pretty amazing things. The Paoli Massacre, though, would always be General Grey's legacy among the Continentals and particularly General Anthony Wayne, who really struggled to get over what happened that night. My book recommendation this week is The Battle of Paoli by Thomas McGuire. As you might guess from the title, the book focuses on the Battle of Paoli itself. It's not a terribly long book, at under 300 pages total, but gets into good coverage of the battle. And if you want those details, which I admittedly never have enough time to cover in my podcast episodes, you'll want to read the book. I've recommended two other books that McGuire wrote. One was called Stop the Revolution, and another one just a few weeks ago called The Philadelphia Campaign. His book about Paoli is one of his earlier books, first published in 2000. McGuire lives in the Philadelphia area and teaches history. As I said, if you want to read more about the Paoli Massacre, you'll want to get McGuire's book, The Battle of Paoli. If a book on the topic is too much, my online recommendation this week is a shorter article called The Massacre of Paoli, which was written for the battle's centennial back in 1877. The article covers the battle in a fairly descriptive way in about 25 pages. The remainder of the article is primary source letters and other documents about the battle. The article was first published in the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography. You can read it on JSTOR, although you have to register if you want to read the whole article there. There's also a copy of it on archive.org, which you can read without any registration requirements. I've added links to both versions of the article on my blog, which you can read at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the age of Napoleon. 
I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.